Hello, this is David Lead of Leeds Culinaria, and welcome back for another episode of our Author's Answer series, where cookbook authors and food writers come to our table so we can bring them to yours. You know her name from many places, maybe the 29 books she's written, or the countless articles she's penned from everyone from Martha Stewart to Bon Appetit, but I bet you know her best from her popular New York Times column, A Good Appetite. We're talking with none other than Melissa Clark. Welcome, Melissa. Great to be here. So 29 books, huh? 29 books. Gosh, I had a hard time getting through one, let alone more than two dozen. <laughs> Girls got to make a living <laughs> in New York, especially, right? So anything else on top of that you're doing? Well, I just finished my 30th, which oh. is um, it's a seasonal cookbook inspired by the farmer's market. And it's really a kitchen diary of the way I cook, exactly the foods that I'm making for my family. The recipes are easy. Everything is very fresh. Everything is very seasonal, but not sort of anally seasonal. You know, it's like, right. you know what? I'm going to use a cucumber in the middle of winter if I really want that juicy and Christmas. Okay and I, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you know what? That's just fine. But mostly I'm really um, going to the market and just getting inspired by what I see. So there's a lot of kale. Okay. Because it's very personal and I love kale. I adore kale. And you know what? There's not one fava bean because as much as I love them, I like eating them in restaurants where someone else will peel them for <laughs> exactly. me. So it's very quirky and personal. So I understand you got the title today. Yeah, we've been going back and forth with the publisher. Um, the original title that I really like was A Year of Excellent Eating, which kind of mm, sums up, lovely. you know, it, this because it's a year-long um, look at what I've been eating. It starts out with January chapter, March, et cetera, February, March, April. Um, the new title is Cook This Now, which also implies seasonal because yes, it's it now. Um, and then it's 120 easy, delectable recipes you can't wait to make. So a little bit more generic, but yet gets the message out there, I Absolutely. Hope. And I think people can relate to that. Cook this now. Yeah, cook this now. But the book I want to talk about now is your latest in-print book called In the Kitchen with a Good Appetite, 150 Recipes and Stories about the Food You Love. So tell us a bit more about the book and how it came to be. It's inspired by my Times column. There are 150 recipes, and out of those recipes, maybe I think 40 or 50 are from the Times, but the rest are new. So there's over 100 brand new recipes, but they're all using that same format of what am I hungry for? You know, that's a question I ask myself every single day. What do I want to eat? What am I hungry for? And I really take time and think about that because I think a lot of us kind of when we're making dinner, we're going by rote. You know, mm -hmm. we're like, oh, what have I made before? What, what do I have? I'm in a hurry. I'm really hungry. And I feel like if we all took a moment to just stop and say, what do I really, really crave? We'd be so much happier when we were cooking and eating. Right. And that is the just the um, sort of philosophy behind every recipe I make and everything I write. And then what I've done in the book and also what I do in my column is tell the story of how the recipe came to be. So, you know, I'm, what am I hungry for? Am I hungry for a hot, dripping pot full of polenta with mm. butter and cheese? Ooh, yes, I am. In fact, right now. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, now. And um, so I've got my polenta. Then what goes on top of that polenta? And I just take the reader through my mind, through the, the mind of a cook, Polenta, it's soft, it's creamy, it's a little bit sweet from the butter, it's a little salty. I need something pungent and bright and bright green to kind of really wake it up. Mm -hmm. And so then I'm going to serve it with something like broccoli rob or kale or chard or something really pungent and intense flavored with a lot of garlic and a lot of chili. And then I need something, I need a protein to bring it all together and I've got my fried egg. 
And a crispy olive oil fried egg. And that's what makes a recipe. And that story behind it is what goes into the book. Well, when I work for the New York Times, Pete Wells, of course, is the mm-hmm. editor and your editor yes, too. Yes. He always says to me, I want you to think of what you do as the search for deliciousness. Yes. Which sounds like that's what you're doing. Exactly. And, you know, for you, I know you're more far flung when you're looking for deliciousness. You're, yes. you're going all around, which is really exciting for me to read about. For me, I'm just going to the store. My cupboards. I'm going to the fridge. I'm going to that awful freezer that I have of stuff in there from years and years ago. But every once in a while, I'm like, ooh. In fact, today, right before I left, I grabbed some bratwurst from the freezer. I'm like, okay. Because I really wanted sausage. So, so putting you on the spot, what are you making? Yeah, I haven't figured the rest of that out, but I think, you know, so I think of, this is what I do. So I sit there and I go, bratwurst. Okay, bratwurst. Germany, right? Mm-hmm. So, Red cabbage. Yes. So, but I don't want a braised red cabbage like a typical soft braise. I want a crunchy red cabbage salad. So I'll probably do something like that, maybe with some walnuts in it. Probably red wine vinegar. I've got dill, so I'll add dill to that. And dill works really well with red cabbage and bratwurst. Okay. And then I need a starch, right? Mm-hmm. We've been talking about polenta, so polenta kind of is turning me on right now, but doesn't really go with bratwurst, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I've also have potatoes at potatoes, home, yep. and I have sweets and regular. So maybe I'll do a mixed roasted, you know, big thing of sweet potatoes and regular potatoes all roasted together with some garlic. You know, and that's dinner. Oh, I'm ready for dinner. Yeah, me too. I'm coming. Will you make it for me? No. <laughs> I'll <laughs> I make go. it for you. <laughs> I want to visit. So you're saying about 40 recipes from the book are from the column. Exactly. How did you re-envision them and restructure them for the book? My column is short. It's only between 400 and 700 words. And That's all? Yeah, it's wow, short. it reads longer. I pack a lot of stuff in there. <laughs> yeah, you do. I actually longer. have really great editors who help me trim it so that I can get the same story that would take 1,200 words if I was meandering, squished down into, you know, 600. Right. Um, and so what I did, though, is I kind of filled in a little bit more of the backstory. I got a little bit more personal than I'm comfortable doing in the newspaper, and mm-hmm. the newspaper is comfortable having me do. Mm-hmm. I talk about my parents. I talk about my child. I talk about, you know, really in a more in-depth way. I'll mention them in the story in the Times, but I'll give more back background on them. Um, my divorces, my you know, a little Good bit of the you. little bit of the the backstory of what Do makes me. Do you feel it's a little bloggy? And I don't mean that in a negative way. Mm-hmm. Is a little bit bloggy some of the, uh, yeah. the way you approach some, the topics? Yeah, for sure. I think so. I mean I don't think there's much of a division between food blogging and food I mean it's the same. It's there just really telling is. it's telling a story. Yeah and we did a big, big survey and the thing that people love most about food writing is the relatability to the subject yeah. and the writer. Yeah. And that sounds perfect what you're doing. Yeah, and it's it's really fun for me because I mean I'm hungry all the time. I always want to I'm always thinking about what to eat. That's what I want to write about. And so the fact that I can actually make a living doing it, it's like And it's a sin, you're as thin as you are. An utter sin that I, you are. I, I work I work at it. I work at it. <laughs> as you see, I do too. <laughs> So tell me, one of the things I love about the book is the fact that they're longish headnotes mm-hmm. or shortish essays, right. which I really find I really find that to be very interesting. Now, was it hard to get the publisher to agree to that? Because a lot of publishers nowadays want these very compact recipes and squeeze a lot more in. No, my publisher was absolutely terrific about that. It's Hyperion. They let me write as much as I wanted in the headnotes. They love the text and they love the recipes and text coming together. Um, I have the same publisher for the new book mm-hmm. and. I've divided it up a little bit differently. I ha- the head notes are a little bit shorter, maybe less like essays. But then what I've done is at the end of each recipe, I have a little section called what else. Right. Every possible musing that I can think of about this recipe, substitutions, where you could go with it, what I was thinking when I made it. And it's very random, which I love. And they were completely fine with it. So a lot of our readers and a lot of our listeners are exploring the idea of possibly writing a cookbook. 
And I'm curious because when I wrote mine, I had a set number of pages I mm. had to fill. Okay. Anything over, that was it. Did you just write and write and write and the book came out? Or did they tell you certain number of pages, that's it, Melissa? I just wrote and wrote and wrote and the book came out. Oh, you are blessed. It depends on the publisher. Yeah. But here's one thing. As you notice, my book has no photos. Yes, and mine did. Exactly. Yeah. And that makes a big difference in terms of publishing, how they're going to do the book. Once you start having photos, once you have a four-color book with photos on every page or photos on every couple of pages, it becomes a completely different format. It's a whole that different you animal. Yeah, it really is. I mean, so for me, what I gained in freedom, I lost in photos. And a lot of readers are really distressed not to have photos. I was going to say, how do you feel about not having photos in the book? For this book, I was completely fine with it. I didn't want photos because it's not the first thing that I look at it at a cookbook. I look at the recipes. I look at the the inspiration of the book. I mm-hmm. read the book. I love reading the book. I want to hear the voice of the writer. That's really important to me. And right. the photos are nice, but I see it in my head. And that's what I was going for is I want people to see that food in their head because you know what? It's going to look different in your head than it looks in a photo. Mm-hmm. And it's going to look more delicious to you in your head, frankly. It just is because you're <laughs> the one inventing it. And I wanted people to have that freedom. However, I can tell you that this, no, was, not a, this was not a popular move on my part. I got so many comments like, I really like this book despite the fact that had no photos. Like, sorry, sorry. Right. So the next book is going to have photos. Excellent. Yeah. Who's and the photographer? Do you know? We haven't signed yet, but I'm talking to Christopher Hersheimer, who I love. She's terrific. So we'll terrific. see. Another thing I like about the book is the casualness, the almost blatant disregard that you have when you're creating recipes. Now, I'm thinking particularly of the chic quiche in mm-hmm. the book. Now, you were inspired by Julia Child mm-hmm. with the quiche that she had, and suddenly you threw away half that recipe, <laughs> adopted another half of another recipe, put them together to create a third recipe. I, I love that. Explain to me a little bit about how you sort of just put that all together and choose here and, and pull from there to be able to make these recipes. You know, a lot of people like to change recipes to suit themselves, and anybody can do it on any level of cooking. But to really do it, you know, like you described, like take half of one thing and half of another and and a third thing and add it in, I learned how to do this over time. And this is a skill I developed because I co-authored many of my cookbooks with chefs. Mm-hmm. So out of the 29 books, probably 20 of them are co-authored with okay. other people. I got these tutorials with these amazing chefs and I learned so much uh. like David Boulay, like Danielle Ballou. Right now I'm writing a book with the folks from Franny's. So I'm working with Andrew Feinberg. Yeah, in Brooklyn. And um, every time I write a book with someone else, I learn a completely new skill set, a complete new way of cooking, of looking at food. And what the biggest thing I've learned is everybody knows what they're doing and nobody knows what they're doing. There's not one right way to do something. There are a hundred million right ways to roast a chicken, to make a tart, to make a quiche. And my way is just as valid if in the end it comes out tasting good. And that gives me a lot of freedom. Well, interesting because that brings up my next point is on the book jacket, it touts this idea that the genesis of a lot of the recipes came from sometimes kitchen mishaps mm-hmm. or flops yep. or last-minute improvisations or ingredient substitutions. Yeah. I think a lot of people at home cook the same way. Exactly. I think you give them permission in this book to kind of think that way. I hope so. That's what I'd like to do. I mean, I want people to not feel locked in by a recipe. I want people to feel, you know, liberated. So tell me a little bit about some of the kitchen mishaps that created some of the recipes in the book. Oh, God, I, I, I screw up all the time. It's like every, <laughs> so single, every single day I feel like I'm like, oh, oops. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I really meant to add those apples. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example from the book. Um, 
I've had a lot of barley mishaps, and I'm not sure. I think there's a barley, there's chicken barley soup in this recipe. Mm-hmm. And okay, have you ever tried to make barley like a pilaf and you mm-hmm. add the exact right amount of water? This is a typical way to make barley is you cook a pot of water mm-hmm. exactly the right amount and you add your barley and you simmer together like a rice pilaf. And all of the water is supposed to evaporate at the exact moment that the barley is at its most toothsome del- deliciousness, right? right? That never happens. My barley is soft. There's too much water in the pot or the pot is burnt out and there's not enough water in the pot. I can never get it right. So a lot of times when I make barley, trying to make it this way, I turn it into soup because it's just not right. So I'm like, <laughs> okay, let's just add some chicken broth and some carrots. And, and that's it. And that's it. And that um, – so I'll have a lot of things. And I, I've discovered the best way to make barley is to cook it like pasta. That's how I cook my rice. Yeah, yeah and it's great for rice. It's yes. great for um, – for millet, for quinoa, for yeah. tabbouleh, for any kind of grain. Just strain it. Just strain it. So much easier. I know. Give it a bang on the strainer to get all the water out. Put it back in the pot for 30 seconds just to dry, keep, it, just out to dry it out and then you're set. So I, I really – but before I learned that, <laughs> before I became <laughs> convinced of that, there was a lot of grain mishap. So I made a lot of grain soups. Um, other things that I do – well, I've discovered – you know how some recipes say never let the garlic turn brown or it yeah. will turn bitter? Well, what I've learned is if you let the garlic turn brown and it turns bitter, add more oil and get it black and then it tastes good again. Are you serious? Yes. Same thing with onions. Have you ever made black, black onions, you know, Jewish-style black mm-hmm. onions? Mm-hmm. All you have to do is so if you burn your onions just a little bit around the edges and that's not what you're going for, you really thought you wanted golden onions, just keep cooking them Go until the they're way. completely black. And then you'll have this something else that's just as delicious, not what you thought of, right. but still really good to eat. Slightly smoky maybe? They're, yeah, and they're crunchy. They're smoky. They're, they're very sweet. You know, because they get so sweet, you don't mind that little bitterness that they have also. It's a good combination. Blackened onions are one of my favorite things. I love it as a garnish for soups on top of lentils. Um, they're great if you ever make just plain dumplings with mm-hmm. blackened onions on top and sour cream. Oh, my God. That's oh my God. so good. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. Did you eat lunch before you came? <laughs> no, I haven't. It's unfortunate. I'm not going to be home until about 4, 4.30, so I'm going to be dying by then. So as the New York Times columnist, mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure that you're inundated with lots of questions. Yes. Now, what are some of the major questions you keep on hearing about over and over again, either from the book or some just major questions that, that readers have for you? Gosh, you know, lately I've been getting a lot of questions about beans because – and this isn't in the book. This mm-hmm. is an article I did for The Times where I said, you know what? You don't have to soak your beans. Mm-hmm. And people – some people were like, yay, I've never soaked my beans. And other people were like, what are you, crazy? And so I've been really learning about people and their bean soaking habits and I get a lot of feedback, advice, questions on this. And this I find myself pretty much every single day opening my email and writing back about this – about beans that I wrote about you know four months ago. And the thing that that is so funny about that is I'm so – I'm not consistent in the way I cook. I don't know if you are. Like no, some things I do everything the same way, but usually I don't. So sometimes I soak my beans, sometimes I don't. And people get so upset that I wrote this article that said, you know, don't soak your don't beans. Soak. And so I write back and I'm sort of like, well, actually, sometimes I do soak. And, you know, <laughs> and I hate to, I, I want to guide people, but I also don't want people to think that there's one right way to do it. So here's the thing I made chili the other day. I thought of it four hours ahead. I soaked my beans for four hours. Mm-hmm. And you know what? It was fine. If I hadn't soaked it, I would have cooked it longer. It would have been fine. If I'd soaked them overnight, I would have cooked it less. It would have been fine. Do you think that's because you're so well-versed with food and so well-versed with cooking that you can sort of make those adaptations and make that variation where maybe a cook who isn't has to really live and die by that recipe? I I do think so. I do think because I know – I mean that's one thing I can adjust for that. I know in my head, oh, if I soaked it four hours, that means I'll probably need to cook it for – 
you know, an X hour and a half. Time, right, yeah. exactly. And I can make that calculation. And I think that, you know, I get a lot of questions about that too. Like, you know, how do I make that calculation? Like, or how, a lot of times people ask me how to double a recipe or triple a recipe and I'll help them, you know, be able to convert that, that because out. I can do that in my head and just yeah, and I think having a lot of experience. Yeah. A new cook or the average cook may not be able to have that sort of facility to right. be able to do that as quickly as you do. Right. Now, one of the things I find very interesting about the book as we were going through looking for recipes to put on Leeds Culinaria Mm -hmm. is that we have a section called Weeknight Winners uh, where we offer weekly dishes that can be made, number one, quickly, number Mm -hmm. two, deliciously, and most important, number three, from scratch. Yes. That's really important to us. Now, a lot of your recipes would fit neatly under that rubric. So what are your thoughts on recipes that are quick and entirely homemade? I live and die by entirely homemade. I mean, that's one thing. I mean, we're sitting here talking about beans. I do that's probably the only processed product I use is canned beans, but I've been cooking my own lately and they're so much better and they're mm-hmm. just not hard if you can think ahead. But it's okay. I mean, it's fine to use canned beans. I use them too. But fresh ingredients, real ingredients, it's so easy to get so much flavor out of them. You don't need to go to packages. You don't need to be semi-homemade. All right. you need to do is keep With a lot – With all apologies to Miss Sandra. Well, you know, people can do what they want to do, but that's not what I'm going to do. And that's right. not what you're going to find no. in my cookbook or in my column. Um, and the thing that I really believe very strongly is if you – if you have your condiments, mm-hmm. you know, your condiments are almost like, you know, think of your condiments as almost like a can. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Because these are ingredients that, like olives, like capers, like anchovies. I mean, on the one hand, they are from bottles, they are from jars, but they're still, they're ingredients. They're ingredients, they're yeah. not processed food. Exactly. And so they add a ton of flavor. So if you're thinking that I need a can of this or a package of this flavoring mix to give something flavor, I would say think of something that's a real ingredient, that's real food, that also has a lot of flavor. And that's why I look to these ingredients. They have a lot of umami. Do you know that? Yes, absolutely. Flavor. Yeah. And so when I'm cooking, I'm always thinking, well, where am I going to get that from? Because that's the missing element. That's the MSG that you're getting in processed foods. Exactly. And if you can find that in something natural, like a Parmesan, just a a little rind from a piece of Parmesan adds so much flavor or grated Parmesan on something, or even just using enough garlic, salt, and olive oil and lemon. If you can balance those things. You can have the simplest dish of just sautéed chicken or sautéed shrimp, have some garlic, fresh garlic versus, you know, caramelized cooked garlic and two different flavor notes, you know. Or the tubed garlic. Yeah. uh That's pretty awful. That's scary stuff. It has a (laughs) taste. Anyway, uh, but also, you know, how to use your lemon, like fresh lemon juice and then the zest. Yeah. How to get the most out of the simplest ingredients once you learn a few tricks for doing that, you will not have to rely on anything from a jar or anything processed. I think you have a whole new book here, basically using ingredients as seasonings. Because yeah. I use uh, I use anchovy as seasonings. Me too. All the time. Yeah. I use that instead of salt because it does give umami mm-hmm. and it gives that un, sort of unmistakable flavor. But no one can cut quite pin, pinpoint. Right. It doesn't taste fishy. It just tastes like more. Exactly. Recently, I was doing a demonstration and I have this green olive dip that is made with anchovy. Mm-hmm. And I asked this person who was helping me from the audience saying, do you like anchovies? She, Absolutely not. I said, that's a good thing because we're not using them. And they were already in there. And right. she tasted it. She said, this is incredible. I said, well, this has anchovy in it. She was shocked that it had anchovy. And yeah, people yeah. don't really know that. I mean, if they see it, clearly they're going to freak out. Right. But capers the same way too. Seasoning with capers, seasoning with lemon, yeah. seasoning with garlic. All yeah. that stuff's important. And vinegar also. You know, vinegar yes. is another thing. And nice that's – it's balancing – I think the most important thing for people to get used to when they're tasting their food is first of all go with your gut mm-hmm. and make sure to add enough salt and enough something – 
acidic, tangy. That's the olive. That's the caper. That's the lemon. Right. It's the vinegar. And it balancing those two things is what makes your food sing. It's that extra little something. And, Absolutely. And that is what that in my next book. There's a lot of that. A lot of you know instruction on how to do that. How to take through everyday recipe and just add that little something that you already have in your cabinet. You don't have to buy it and make the recipe sing. Exactly. One of the things that I found uh, very interesting in the book and it's very dear to me, although I don't have kids, is I believe they should be in the kitchen, have two feet firmly planted in front of the stove. So any tips for our moms and dads out there to get their kids more interested in food, get them in the kitchen to start cooking at an early age and for good nutrition? Yeah. I mean, first of all, kids will eat. They're so much more likely not they necessarily will, but they're more likely to eat something that they've been involved in. So I'm constantly having my daughter, Dahlia, who's about two and a half, almost two and a half, constantly having her do things like shred up the kale, you know, mm-hmm. like when I'll, as you can see, I love kale. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you do. I know, I've mentioned it about a hundred times. Um, so I'm cleaning the kale. I'm taking the stems out, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm using a little knife to do that. And I don't give her a knife yet, but I give her the the kale and I'm like, okay, help mommy take it off. And she's not really helping, but she's playing with it. She's throwing it over her shoulder. She's eating it. She's, you know, using it to like flop on the cat or like, you know, whatever she's doing, but she's involved. Mm -hmm. And so then when it comes time to eat the kale, she doesn't always eat it, but she knows that she helped make it. And I just try to do that with everything. I mean, with the, I make her this macaroni and cheese, which is the eat and completely fresh, the easiest thing in the world. You take whole wheat macaroni, you boil mm-hmm. it, you put it back in the, you drain it, put it back in the pot with heavy cream, simmer the heavy cream and the whole wheat macaroni for about a minute. And while that's simmering, you grate up some good cheddar cheese, put it on top and then just simmer it again for another 30 seconds. So the cheese melts, emulsifies with the cream, forms a perfect cream sauce, and that's it. And so while I'm doing that, Dahlia is helping me. She's, you know, helping me with the cheese. She's helping me hold the strainer. You know, there's all kinds of ways that she – of course, she'll eat macaroni and cheese if she's in the other room playing and I make the whole thing. That's an easy one. But there's always a way to get them involved. Interesting. How about older kids? What do you suggest for kids who are 8, 9, 10? Well, they can really help. Hey, Uh they should be washing the lettuce and making the dressing. I mean, (laughs) they better be. I mean, by that age, Dahlia had better actually be cooking for me. (laughs) That's going to be a problem. (laughs) So, Melissa, I want to thank you so much for coming here and speaking to us. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Me too. This was so fun. We've been chatting with Melissa Clark, author of In the Kitchen with a Good Appetite. I suggest you go out right now and buy a copy today. I'm David Leet from Leeds Culinaria. Join us soon for another episode of our Author's Answer series that will always leave you hungry for more. Thank you.